Well, we're in week two of You Asked For It, and what I'm doing is we're going through questions that were submitted by the congregation, and I'm going to try to uh, answer them as best as I can. Uh, last week, we looked at the topic of death. Death, every time I do a kind of submit your own questions thing, it's always the number one topic that people ask for. I was surprised that nobody asked what happens to poor dear Fluffy when she's gone. Nobody asked that one this time. That's usually a pretty popular one. And uh, as me and Ben discussed this week, um, cats actually are the kindling that lights the fires of hell. So if you ever wonder what happens to cats, <laughs> that's... Ben told me that, so if you're going to send the hate mail, send it his way, please. Uh, I had a cat growing up. I loved her. She was great. Um, so, but, th- but last week, death was the really only topic that kind of floated to the surface in all these questions. They were really all over the place. So what I'm going to do this week and next week is I'm just going to take questions, boom, boom, boom. They're not connected at a topic at all, so we'll answer one and we'll move on to the next uh, as we go. And one thing I did say kind of last week, just as a precursor to this message, that I will say again is um, in, uh, for some reason, in certain religious circles, some people have gotten this idea that there's something unique or special or more spiritual about somebody who wears the name minister, pastor, clergy, reverend, whatever, and that, you know, you poor lay people will never ascend to the spiritual heights that we can get to. And, and I don't believe that to be true. And I don't answer these questions to give you the impression that I'm the smartest person in the room. I am not the smartest person in the room. I don't even know the most about the Bible of anybody in the room, so I can't even claim that title. So hopefully you don't think that I'm trying to build some wall between myself and you. In fact, I have on the regular said some of the dumbest things, so I doubt that that that, pre, that notion exists here, you probably realize, oh, he ain't special. Oh, you, I've said enough, you know. So, but I do want to say that. The, the, if there's any reason I can answer questions that you guys couldn't figure out the answers to or just always wondered and never really got a, success, uh, a, a satisfactory answer, it's simply because I have more time to devote to this topic, uh, these topics, than you do. So um, let's go on. Question one. We'll start with a nice, easy one, right? Where did God come from? Uh, I don't know who asked this one, but uh, it's, a, it's a good one. It sounds like uh, one of the questions my kids ask me, and I don't say that as an, as an insult. Kids ask the best theological questions. They ask the hardest theological questions. The only question that can be a little harder than this one is, what's God made of? Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know. Like I've, I don't know where to start with that, you know. That's not in the Bible anywhere. So where did God come from? Now, believe it or not, the answer to this question is pretty simple in the, in the fact that the Bible just tells us over and over again that God is eternal. It means that he, not just that he will always exist into the future, but that he has always existed into the past. Psalm 90, verse 2, puts it this way. It's probably the best little snapshot of this concept in the, in the Bible, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Everlasting to everlasting. Everlasting to everlasting means forever forward in time and forever back in time, you are God. And so the answer, where did God come from, is nowhere. He just has always been. And that's a hard concept for us because we live in a world of beginning and, beginnings and endings. 
Everything that we know of has a beginning and ending. Even things that predate us will have a beginning and an ending. You've probably heard that at some point in the distant future, our sun will burn itself out and blow our world to smithereens and all life in and our little solar system will die. You maybe heard that. You've heard the stories of how suns pop into being. So we know even our sun that's millions of years older than us and will billions of years and, and you know forever in, in the future, you know, you know that it has a beginning and an ending. But to say that God has no beginning and no ending is just something that's kind of hard for our brains to grasp. Well, to go back to the most confusing part of my message last week, one thing I talked about was that time, at least time as we know it, is limited to our physical universe. That when our universe started, that's when time began. Before that, there was no time. And if our universe were to cease existing, time would stop existing. And so the God that was outside of our universe, creating our universe, is not locked by time. And so even the question, where did he come from? That has time words in it. How long has he existed? Those kind of those are time words, and God is not bound by time as we know it. And so, where did God come from? He just always has been. In fact, one of the most common names of God, at least in the Old Testament, is I am. You are? I am. From where? I am. How far ago? I am. I am. That just means God is. He is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. That's God. Now, that's a hard concept to get. But that's what the Bible tells us. It doesn't mean we have to understand it fully, because I don't understand half of the stuff I learned from physics, but that was my lousy attempt at physics. Now, the second question is a good one for anybody who's ever thought, man, you know, sometimes I go to church and I feel like Anthony doesn't talk about biology enough. And if that's you, today's your day. So how are there different nationalities? How are there different nationalities? And I get the idea behind this, okay, because if you read the, the Bible, you think, okay, Adam and Eve, right? God made Adam and Eve. Surely Adam and Eve, whatever nationality they, are, they were, they were probably the same, right? Because Adam was, or Eve was created from Adam, we see. And so how did we get from Adam and Eve to all of these different racial diversities, or at least the classifications that we say race? And we're t- I mean, there's a variety of skin colors all over the world. There are, you know, you get into Africa, you get African Americans, you get Native Americans whose skin is kind of a, it's darker, but it's red. You get into the uh, Indian Peninsula, and you got people who their skin is dark, but it's not in the same shade, or or I don't even know how you say it, as as African Americans. And then you go to the Far East, and then you get to people who they have, uh, their facial features tend to be different, their eye shape is different, and, and things like that. And it's like, how did we get from Adam and Eve to this great variety of races on the earth? How did that happen? Well, um, as I was looking at the answer, and I'll be honest, I've got to limit my answer kind of to um, the differences in skin color, because um, I could find no good reason why like certain facial features are track, track in a people group outside of it just happened. I couldn't, I couldn't really come up with a, really a great uh, answer for that. But, um, so let's just limit ourselves to the, the topic of skin color, okay? Um, here's where the biology part comes in a little bit. How many of you have ever heard of melanin? 
Okay, melanin, yeah, most of you. Melanin is that chemical in your skin that makes you that beautiful golden tan after you went on a vacation to Florida. It's that thing that makes you come back from the beach and you look like you don't belong here in central Illinois because you're five shades darker than everybody else. And what's up with that? Truman, you're almost back to central Illinois normal, but he's, he's, he'll go back to Florida soon and he won't belong, he'll, he'll look like a, a Floridian pretty soon. But that's, that's melanin. As you spend time in the sun, your body produces more melanin. Now, what I did not know about melanin is there are two types of melanin. I'm not going to give you their names because they're ludicrous sounding and that just confuses everything. But the first type of melanin is what we think of. It's the brownish black pigment that is found in your skin. But the second one has a reddish yellow color. And it's, it's just a matter of which type of melanin your cells make. Because there are cells in your skin called melanocytes that make one of these two types of melanin. And if you have uh, a lot of the first type of melanin, the black-brown, you will have darker skin. African-Americans have a lot of that first type of melanin. The second type of melanin is found in people who have red hair. And they have almost none of the other kind of melanin. This is why some of you, you have a, the second type of melanin will never lead to the golden brown tan that you so deserve. You could spend Years on the beach, and all you're going to get is burnt over and over and over and over again. You're never going to get used to it. Uh, we, have, we have some friends in college, red hair. I mean, they were so white-skinned, you're like, you're like two degrees away from albino. And, that's, and it's just because their body wasn't making that first type of melanin, just the second type of melanin, okay? So that's, that's the basics, okay? There's two types of melanin. One makes your skin darker, one does not. Now, when Adam and Eve, let's say, procreated and, and spread... They had a, ultimately, there was one people group, one group of humans in an area on the world. Eventually, as they grew, they spread. And so you had these, this group of people that were uh, sharing a basic gene pool as they interbred among one another. All the genes were kind of in this one group, but then they broke apart and they separated to different parts of the world. And then what took place is what is called genetic drift. It is where these two Groups that were identical at one point, they separate, and then anything that takes place, it's limited and isolated to that group. Um, there are mutations that take place in the human genome, things that change slightly over time. If this group experienced a mutation, it would no longer be shared with this group over here, and so they slowly drift apart, genetically speaking. And God made our bodies to adapt to the surroundings that we are in. And this is one of the coolest things about the human body that God made. So let's say, for instance, just go, talking about melanin, you'd have the, uh, let's say you got one group that moved to sub-Saharan Africa, or anywhere where the equator, where, near the equator where the sun is just beating on the earth a little bit more uh, directly all of the time, okay? They, over time, began to develop more and more melanocytes, more and more cells, making this dark melanin, which protected their skin from the harsh sun rays that were hitting that part of the world, and they became darker and darker and darker as that became an advantageous adaptation for living in that part of the world. Now, let's see the other group, when they split off, went north. They're Scandinavian, right? They would have gotten lighter and lighter and lighter because they didn't need the protection from or from the sun, because they, were, they don't get as much sun up near the North Pole. But the other problem is, is if you have too much melanin, it blocks out the sun, and you have trouble making, does anybody know, what vitamin? D. 
That's why it's in our milk, because we poor white folks, aren't we, you know, we need that vitamin D. That's why, okay? Because when you, if you are too dark, it blocks your production, your body's ability to make vitamin D. And if you lack vitamin D, your body has a host of problems that will start to develop over time. And so those ones that went north, their bodies learned not to make as much melanin because that would hurt them. That would be a problem for them, and so their skin was lighter and lighter as they needed it to be to make vitamin D because they weren't worried about the harsh sun the way those in sub-Saharan Africa would be. And so as these two groups drift apart, they end up looking differently. And pretty much creationists and scientific evolutionists believe that that is the answer. They disagree over how long that took, but ultimately that is the, the this idea of genetic drift is what people ascribe for this answer. But here's what's really interesting, just to show you. You know, we say the word race is a lot, you know, this race, that race, racism, and all that. We live in a, a time that is just amazing to be alive, I think. If you have any, if, you, if science wows you or fills you with awe at all, we live in a really amazing time to be alive because they have now mapped the entire human genome. Uh, I, I watched a video not too long ago, and they went and showed this guy, um, a, the, an entire human genome printed in binders, just printed out the letters um, that we use to associate for DNA, just printed out on paper over and over again, binders filled with two-sided printings of DNA. And it was this huge bookshelf of, uh, that's, that's one person's DNA just mapped out on this bookshelf. It was so cool that there was just that much information. The differences in race, what we call race, the differences that account for the looks between all of the different races on earth account for less than 0.01% of the human genome. That means there are no races. There is the human race. And though we look differently, that was just simply God's amazing way to let our bodies survive in the world that he made us. But to think that there are more than one race, that's really not true. We've kind of created that idea as we've gone along. There's only one human race, and it's the one that God put here to serve and worship him. So that's question two. Question three. This is the most theologically complex one and the one we'll spend most of our time on today. It's two questions in one. Why can't unbaptized believers take communion and will unbaptized believers go to heaven? Now, there's two questions here, but they're both dealing with the same issue. They're both asking, basically, about communion and going to heaven, because, which is interesting because those are both things Christians do. Okay, Christians go to heaven, Christians take communion. That's not disputed. Why would somebody who doesn't believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ want to take communion and honor and remember the sacrifice he made? They would. That doesn't make sense. So communion is for Christians, and heaven is for believers as well. In fact, that's what they say. They say believers take communion, and believers go to heaven. But the common question is, why can't unbaptized believers? And so baptism is kind of the hinge issue here. And so the real question is, is there such a thing as an unbaptized believer? That's the question, really, that we've got to answer before we can answer these two questions. Or another way to say it is, does baptism make you a Christian? That's the heart, I think, of both questions. Now, traditional Christian church doctrine, along with Catholic doctrine and Lutheran doctrine and a host of other denominations, would, would say, absolutely, yes, you have to be baptized to become a Christian. You have to be baptized to have salvation, to go to heaven, and all of that. And I'm not going to go, I'm not going to take that 
hard of a, a line stance on that. Um, I'm going to take a little bit of a step back, but here's what we, we do know. At the very least, at the very, very, very least, baptism is a huge part of Christians giving their faith to Christ. When you look into the New Testament, there's a lot of examples of people having conversations with apostles and teachers and receiving the gospel, what must I do to be saved? And they believe in Christ, and they get baptized almost immediately. There's almost no separation between believing in Christ, putting their faith in Christ, and getting dunked into some water. One of my favorite stories is the Ethiopian eunuch. He's just kind of riding along, and, and uh, who is it that stops by? It's um, Philip. There it is. Philip. See, I'm not the smartest person in the room. If any, Let me just we're clarifying that up right now. Philip uh, meets this guy who's just riding in a carriage reading Isaiah. And Philip gets up and he explains to him about Jesus and all that Isaiah had foretold. And he says, well, what's stopping me from being baptized right now? And so the next time they see some water on the side of the road, they stop and they baptize him. And so it's supposed to be right in the middle of this salvation experience. It's meant to be in the middle of that. So we know that at the very least. Another thing we can say at the very least, based on uh, a verse I'm going to read in a moment, Baptism, at the very least, is your commitment to join your life to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's your commitment to join your life to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now let me back up a little bit because it used the word circumcision a lot and that can throw us off. Circumcision in the Old Testament um, was the removal of flesh, I won't go into much more detail, which was a sign of the covenant between God and the Israelites. In the New Testament, it's saying that it's not a physical removal of the flesh, but it is the removal of our nature of flesh, our earthly desires and temptations to do what is evil, to do what is wrong. And through baptism, it says, Christ performs that circumcision. When we unite ourselves with him in baptism, it is Christ performing that circumcision on our lives. It says, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision, having been buried with him in baptism. So that old life, that life of flesh, it gets removed as we are buried with him. We go under the water and we symbolically have our old life buried and died away. And we raise, it says again, through faith in the powerful working of God to have a new life in Christ. So baptism, Paul in, in baptism, Paul is very much trying to say that baptism connects you and me with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in a very meaningful way so that we have a new life. And so something powerful happens at baptism. And if I'm honest, when I read the New Testament, I see over and over again that baptism and salvation are, are man, they're almost always mentioned hand in hand. They are almost always together. There is only one exception where I can see in the New Testament where salvation comes before baptism and where, sa where, where salvation is confirmed, I'll say it that way, before baptism. And um, to give you a little backstory on, on the story before we read it, um, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, um, when the Holy Spirit comes, that's the start of the church. And from the very start of the church to, I don't know, for a good little while, the only Christians were 
Jewish individuals who had converted, in a sense, to Christianity, who had put their faith in Jesus. And so every Christian was somebody who had grown up in the Jewish faith. And the Israelites, that's kind of how they'd always lived with their religious beliefs. They were kind of always like, well, we're the Jews, and we worship the one true God, and nobody else really does, but it's kind of this insider thing, right? And so when they became Christians, that was kind of the same mentality. Well, we're, we've got the Messiah now, but it's still this insider thing. And God, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, had been saying, but my salvation is for all people, and one day I'm going to save all people. And so... In Acts chapter 10, God leads Peter, Jesus' right-hand man, to preach to a group of Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And so Peter is preaching away, and this is what we read in Acts chapter 10. It says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So they're shocked because they'd never seen a saved Gentile. They'd never seen anybody but a Jewish person have the Holy Spirit. And when I think it is in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul talks about how the Holy Spirit is kind of a, a guarantee that we have salvation. He calls it a, a deposit of our faith, a deposit of what's to come. He says the, having the Holy Spirit is a sign of the promise that Jesus has saved you and has prepared something for you. So according to Scripture, having the Holy Spirit means having salvation. And so here you have people who have heard the gospel, put their faith in Jesus, and received the Holy Spirit, and they haven't been baptized yet. And so we go on, and Peter then declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who gave or who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days and teach them more. And so what you end up here with is this one, one exception to the rule. The rule being that somehow baptism is supposed to be interwoven into that moment where you give your life to Christ, at least from the stories we see in the New Testament. And here is the exception where salvation comes before baptism. I believe that the reason there is an exception is because God decided that the Jews were too dumb and too selfish to let the gospel be opened to Gentiles if God didn't kind of take the matter by the reins and show them, I'm saving whoever I want to now. I think they would have said, but they're Gentiles, they can't be saved. They're Gentiles, they can't have what we have. We're, 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 that's our thing, right? And so God said, forget all your talking, forget all your discussing about what God can do and what God can't do. I'm saving them. And so God sent this message, I save whoever I want. And I think God did it in that moment to send a very specific message that he was opening the gates of salvation to the entirety of the human world. And we in this room should be glad that this story takes place because most of us aren't Jewish by descent. We are a Gentile bunch of heathens is what we are. And so by God's grace, in this moment, we got in the door to heaven. Heaven was opened to us. And so God can save whoever he wants. So let's tackle these questions, okay? Why can't unbaptized believers take communion and do unbaptized believers go to heaven? Let's tackle the second one first, about heaven. Again, I'm going to follow up with the second, with what we just learned in that story. God can save whoever he wants. God can save whomever he chooses. Um, he is big enough 
to determine the position of our hearts at the moment of our death to know whether we deserve heaven or hell. Um, there are so many accounts and, and inferences in the New Testament that show that God is more concerned with what is in our hearts than our whatever religious hoops we've jumped through. He is more concerned about our hearts than whatever religious hoops we jump through. Um, one of the more tricky ways people ask this question, can unbaptized believers go to heaven, is what if I'm on my way to church to get baptized and I get into a car wreck and die? What then, preacher? I've had people kind of, hmm, what do you think of that? Trick question, you know. Well, God's big enough to figure that out. God, because you weren't being disobedient. You were on your way trying to be obedient as much as you were able to be obedient, and God will figure that out. We don't have to nitpick and say, well, there wasn't any water. Oh, no. That's God's decision. His judgment is fair and right and good, and everything we see in the New Testament says that he can be trusted with those decisions, to, to greet those with kindness and mercy and justice. And so do unbaptized believers go to heaven? Well, if lightning had struck one of those Gentiles in that moment, I think the answer would have been yes. So maybe there are times when God does that, but I say that hesitantly because that verse is, again, the exception, and God can create as many exceptions as he wants, but that's not the rule that he gives us in the New Testament. The New Testament is that when it comes to baptism, why wait? Why put it off? Why, why would we hesitate from connecting our lives to Christ? Now we come to the why can't unbaptized believers take communion? Well, communion is a remembrance of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Well, why would you want to take communion if you had already rejected uniting your life to this death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Why would you want one without the other? It doesn't make sense. To me, they go hand in hand because you realize we only have two rituals in the New Testament that Jesus gave us, baptism and communion. And they go hand in hand. They serve a very similar purpose of drawing us closer and keeping our feet firmly founded on the truth of Christ. So it, why would we want one without wanting the other? We should want both. We should be obedient in both. And so um, maybe that's not a, a great answer, but it does beg the question, are there unbaptized believers? And we've seen that, that, yeah, sometimes that can be the case. But I think, but even those unbaptized believers, what'd they do right after they were believers? They baptized them. It's got to be, it's supposed to be in the mix. I won't go, I won't even go as far as to say it has to be in the mix. Again, God sorts that out. But as far as we learn from the New Testament is that God put that to be a part of our faith. Part of our, our, tr our conversion experience was to be baptized, go under the water, have our old life die away, and come out with a new life in Christ. And so that's where, that's where I land on it. I, I still take mostly a Christian church stance. I just put a little asterisk on it and say, but God can do what he wants because we've seen in the Bible that God can do what he wants. Now, baptism is a thing that I understand is weird and it is scary because, I mean, I've never gone to a concert and had somebody say, hey, you want to get dunked today? You know, I've, I've never been at a Garth Brooks concert like rocking out and had Garth come out and throw me in some water. Like that doesn't, that's not a thing that you do. Any, you don't go to school and get dunked in water. I mean, maybe you go to the pool with your friends. They might do it. They might forcibly baptize you in the pool. But for the most part, you don't go to places where we sit and we have conversations and we do things like this together and we get in water. And so we're like, wait, why do you want to dunk me in water? Is it magic water? Well, no, but it's a, it's a religious symbolic event that Jesus 
commanded us to go through. And if there's any hesitancy with you, I would, I would encourage you, come talk to me. If that's something you've been holding back on, I would love to answer any questions that you have about it. I don't want it to be a scary thing. I'll be honest, my baptism was a scary thing because my home church, uh, they made you walk down in front of everybody and there was a one Sunday morning service and there was 400 people and I was 17 years old and by golly, I wasn't going to get up and walk down in front of 400 people. You crazy? And so I had a buddy and I was like, I will if you will. And so we went down and we got baptized together because neither one of us had the guts to do it on our own. So I understand the fear associated with it and how weird it can be. But I would encourage you, come talk to me. I'd like to answer any questions about it uh, and try to still bestill some of your fears if I can at all possible. Because if you're here and you're a Christian and you aren't baptized, my question then is, what is keeping you? If it's clearly called for us to something that we've been called to do in the new testament why why do we hold back why would we not step forward in the step of obedience why would we not want to obey god with this and and to do and to and to ignore that call i I don't know i don't know why we would do that because for i mean if god called you to go be a missionary in another country i would understand you having hesitancy i really would a lot of hesitancy. I say, God, you sure? But if God says, hey, I want you to get in some water for about a minute and a half, you know, you do that all the time. If you take baths or showers or hop in a jacuzzi or ever go swimming, I don't, you know, this is something that, that we are called to do and it's meant to have a significant moment in our life. So if you're hesitant at all, I'd love to talk with you and answer any fears because uh, I would love to know what, what is it that's keeping you. Uh, from that. And maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you've got some more questions about baptism, but you're like, what is this? What about, I don't understand God enough and I don't understand why you want to put me in some water. I would love to talk with you as well. I got all kinds of answers about baptism. It's something I've thought about a lot. Um, So come talk to me. I'll be at the wooden table after the service. I would love to answer any questions you have. Um, That's part two. Next week, we got some more questions. And even, I was going to just do two weeks, but then there were so many questions, so I'll do a third week. And then there was one question that I'm going to preach on the Sunday before Christmas because it's such a powerful and emotional question that somebody asked that I think is answered in the Christmas story. And I'm excited to tackle that too. So um, I hope you'll come for the rest of this series because there's a lot to learn about God and who he um, has called us to be. So let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are grateful for all that you have done in our lives and our hearts. We are grateful for these tough questions because the thing that makes them tough is not necessarily uh, the, the Bible that teaches them because the Bible is often really clear, painfully clear sometimes. The, the pain, though, comes from the fact that we're humans and we have various things going on in our lives that, that make us hesitant to, to obey in certain ways and make us shy away um, from certain ways that you've called us to obey you and and you know the, the scriptures meet us in real life and and I just pray that as we come up here week in and week out and we talk about your word that your word would always meet us where we are in real life that we're not talking about lofty impossible goals but we're talking about how your grace and your mercy they they trickle down to the depths of who we are and you find us in our worst and you want to lift us to our best You want to find us in our weakness, and and you want to shine out your strength. You want to find us when we are absolutely morally bankrupt, and you want to fill us with your truth and your goodness and your mercy and your news for all people. So let us be a church that is open to your word. 
to be changed by it, to be stretched by it, to be made new by it. We are so grateful for the salvation that we have in Christ. May the work of renewing us and regenerating us day by day into your son's likeness continue so that we might one day, one day look a little bit more like Jesus and we might proclaim his truth proudly and loudly. We pray all this in his good and holy name. Amen.